and uh, we've taken like 23 breaks. And so we're coming back to Genesis, and we really are going to finish up Genesis. I promise there are going to be a few breaks in between there because of special events like uh, Resurrection Sunday and uh, some cool things along the way. But we're going to finish up Genesis before summer hits. I promise you. So today we're launching back into Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1 to 11. And today as we look at this passage, I want to make sure... To lay a foundation for us in studying the book of Genesis that helps us to read it as Christian scripture. It is real easy when we are studying through the Old Testament to preach what a former church history teacher of mine called a guy named Mark Dever used to call a seminary or I'm sorry, a synagogue sermon. Not a seminary sermon. Seminary is good. I want a doctorate. I'm not. Yeah. No. That came out wrong. What he calls a synagogue sermon. And what he means by that is. It's very easy when we preach the Old Testament. To come and bring a moral lesson from the lives of the characters in the Old Testament. And the problem with that is. Not so much that there's anything wrong with a moral lesson. The problem is. That a Jewish synagogue can do the same thing. And have the same message. And be completely indistinct from ours. An imam can teach from the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And teach a moral lesson. And we can teach the same thing and be completely indistinct. The difference is that as Christians, we believe the Bible is Christian scripture. And what makes Genesis 37 through chapter 50 and and In reality, Genesis through Malachi different is because as Christians, we understand that the authors of the New Testament were preaching from these passages about Jesus and they learned that from Jesus. So this morning, before we jump into Genesis 37, 1 to 11, I want to do a quick little sketch on our interpretive framework. This is on the blog. Go to MitchJolly.com. It's the first post up there for you this morning. And as you go back through in your Radical Life groups, you're going to see more than I'm going to talk through this morning. You don't have time to hit everything. But before we jump into the life of Jacob, and particularly Joseph, who really is the dominant figure for the rest of the book of Genesis, it's important that we understand our interpretive framework. Because it matters. We talk about, in our circle, expositional teaching, meaning we use the Bible and we bring the message from the Bible. We don't go to the Bible with a topic and, and then try to use the scriptures against their intended purpose. But I want you to understand that expositional teaching is not enough. Jewish rabbis teach expositionally. There's nothing wrong with Jewish rabbis except they don't believe in the Messiah and they're off. Mormons teach expositionally from the Bible. Jehovah's Witness teach expositionally from the Bible. The difference between those is that interpretive framework on the front end that determines how they teach expositionally. 
So therefore, fancy word alert, your hermeneutic. That's one word that means your interpretive framework. All right, so you just learned something. Hermeneutic simply means your interpretive framework. Jesus gave us that. And I'll give you some examples. John 5, 39. Jesus is speaking with the religious teachers. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. That's an audacious claim. Because what Jesus is saying is the text of Moses, the text of Isaiah, the text of Ezekiel, the text of Daniel, the text of David, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, they preach about me. Listen, he said it again. John 5, 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Guess who wrote Genesis 37, 1-11? Moses. So what is Moses ultimately telling us today? Is it a moral lesson from the life of Joseph? No. If all we come with is a moral lesson from the life of Joseph, we miss the point. Jesus told us there that it was Moses who wrote about him. So he says in verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So it's inappropriate to go to the Gospels and think we get more Jesus there than we're going to get from Moses. Jesus was preaching from Moses and said, hey, he was writing about me. You ever pay attention to how in Luke 24, this is not in your notes, and you guys know I like to go off script because when I'm really prepared, like there's all these things, and I'm always, like I love to do this, and like, there's a thousand things in my head because I write this stuff, and it's there, and it's hard not to say it because if I don't say it, I feel like I'm cheating you, right? And I am. If I don't give you everything, that's a prophetic fire that, you know, Jeremiah says it shut up in my bones and I can't hold it in. That's me. It's like, I would, te- I would keep you here for hours if you had sat there. But you wouldn't, right? So I want you to know. I want you to know. I want you to understand. Because you have to go to work tomorrow. And you have to try to fight through your Bible reading plan. And you're going to read strange things. And you're going to... What am I supposed to do with that, Jesus? And Jesus taught us how to do it. So I want to make sure you get it. Luke 16, 31. Oh, man, Luke 24. Just back up. This is beautiful. You ever paid attention how Jesus said in Luke 24, and then Paul preaches from this in 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus said that, in, that, that the Son of Man must be killed and in three days rise from the dead? And Jesus said they taught this in the Old Testament. And Paul said, as it is written, he must be crucified and in three days rise. You ever read through the Old Testament and said it never said anything about three days rising? Hmm. Except in Exodus 19, what day were they supposed to be prepared for the Lord to descend on the mountain on day three? Hosea 6.1. And how many days was the Lord going to raise them up in? Three. 
Ready? Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of fish, then miraculously resurrected back to life to go preach the word to unbelievers. I mean, do you not feel the goosebumps in that? Jesus is saying it taught clearly that the Son of Man would be crucified and buried and on the third day rise. And therein, Jesus gives us the perfect example when we're reading the Scriptures and we find these themes, there's a narrative term, arc them over to Christ or connect them over to Jesus. Luke 16, 31, he said to him, If you do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So in other words, a miracle of resurrection of a dead person to life will not convince you more than Moses and the prophets. Meaning Moses and the prophets say enough. Illustration for you. Spoiler alert. Okay? And if you haven't seen these by now, shame on you. Okay? In 1977, my most favorite movie of all time was released. Star Wars. And for you new bucks, A New Hope. It's called Star Wars. Alright? You saw Star Wars. In the 1980, they released The Empire Strikes Back. And when you get to the end of Empire Strikes Back and you discover that Darth Vader is Luke's dad, you have to go back and watch Star Wars again. Because now there's new information that helps you make sense of all this other stuff. And you go back and you watch... Star Wars with a new set of eyes. When you get to the end of the sixth sense, spoiler alert, and you realize he's been dead the whole time, you have to watch it again and say, oh, my Lord. It changes how you see it. The knee is a glorious thing. God put it together. And this is a surgically repaired one. It's giving me some trouble. And if all I do is look at the knee and I scope down on the knee and just look at the knee, I'll find some amazing things. I'll find some amazing ligaments and amazing bone structures and in mind some plastic and metal and some amazing stuff. But if all I ever do is focus on the knee, all I think is the knee. But when I pan out and look that the knee is part of something bigger and broader and more amazing, I see the knee fits perfectly inside something else. That's... How we come at Genesis 37, 1 to 11. Once you realize that Jesus is the fulfilled promise of Genesis 3, 15. That there would be one who would come from the descent of this woman. Who would crush the head of the serpent. When you realize that's Jesus. You read everything with a new set of eyes. You pan out and you start to see the knees part of something bigger. Joseph is part of something bigger. David is part of something bigger. David and Goliath is not there to teach me to slay my personal giants. I'm the guy on the hill using the bathroom in my pants because I'm scared of Goliath. Jesus is the David. He's the fulfillment of David. Goliath is the curse of sin. And Jesus slays sin at the cross. And triumphs over our enemy and releases all of us who repent and believe in him. Make sense? You see how that story connects and arcs? That's how we read Genesis and not merely do a synagogue sermon. So what do we see in Genesis 37, 1 to 11? So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to read that passage for us. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible today. Uh, you may be reading from the ESV. Either one of those are fine. Um, so I'm going to read the passage and then we're going to 
make some observations and then jump into some applications. Jacob lived in the land where his father stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young men were working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now remember, Bilhah and Zilpah are the servants of Rachel and Leah. And he brought a bad report about the sons of the servant women, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So when his brothers, verse 4, saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field, and suddenly my sheaf stood up, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of the dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had, he said. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, if you've read the New Testament once, that last sentence ought to stand out to you because you've read that somewhere before, and that's later in the notes. So just hang on to that, okay? You tracking with me? Can I recognize where you've heard that before? Does Mary say something like that after the shepherds come and bring gifts? She does. Where do you think that came from? Right here. Just a note here as we look at Genesis going forward. The meaning of our passages when we read the book of Genesis, and heck, for that matter, when you read any long narrative historically, is not found at the sentence level, okay? You, you with me here? It's not found at the sentence level like it is when we read Paul in the New Testament, right? When Paul writes letters, letters are intended to be digested in the totality, word to word, sentence to sentence, because it's a letter. When you read a historical narrative, the meaning is found in the overall bent of the story. Does that make sense? That's just how you read. All right? And hopefully from kindergarten through 12th grade, you, were, you had a lit class. And they taught you how to read genres, right? If you still read. And so how you read genres matters. We're reading Genesis. It's historical narrative. And the meaning is not found at the sentence level, but it is found in the overall bent of the narrative. And therein lies the nature of our observations this morning. What we want to see in this passage, again, is not a moral lesson from the life of Joseph about don't be too busy, don't be too quick to share what God gives you. We can argue whether or not Joseph sinned or not. My personal opinion is Joseph really did nothing wrong other than maybe be a little hasty, but he simply told the truth. Here's the dream I had. They didn't like what he had to say, but he told the truth. 
and they hated him for it and sought to put him to death for it. Can you think of anything in the narrative of the story of Jesus that smells like that? Jesus comes and he speaks the good news. And those who were in charge ahead of him hated him for it. And they sought to put him to death. You see it? You see the bent? You see the arc of the story? That even there... In his brother's hating of him speaking the truth, there is a pointing to what God is going to do in Christ. And therein lies how we read the text. So, what are some observations we can make? Well, here we go. Number one, there are gospel connections all over the place. That's observation number one. There are gospel connections all over the place. The first one I want to draw your attention to is a Trinitarian connection. One of the questions you ask when you read Genesis 37, 1-11 is really, who's the main character? And, well, it could be about Jacob, because it says in verse 1, these are the family records of Jacob. And that's how Genesis is marking out content. There are ten statements like that in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That's all the way back to the beginning. These are the generations of Abraham, and there's ten of those. This is the last of the ten. This is number ten. These are the family records of Jacob. But it goes on to talk about Joseph, not Jacob. And so we begin to ask the question, who's the main character? Is it jo- Joseph? Is it Jacob? Neither. Who's the main character here? Well, the main character is the person giving the dreams. Because who's running the show? Who's in charge? Yahweh is. This is going to tied to our last point, which is Moses intends to show his people who is God and who is not. And so one of Moses' first intents is to show them the Lord is God and there is no other. There is one God and his name is Yahweh and he is our Savior. He's the one who rescued us from Egypt. He is the one who led you out of bondage. He is the one who atoned for your sin. He is the Lord. He is God and we serve him. Not these gods of Canaan, not the gods of Egypt. And so Moses writes us this account, and the main character almost lies hidden until you pay attention. Because he's the one giving the dreams. But he's giving the dreams to the one who is going to stage up his father. And so we see that hidden behind the scenes here is the Lord who is working history and bending history to work for his people to bring them to rescue. And he does it through a suffering servant, Joseph. And so we even begin to see when we pay attention that we are being taught that God has a Trinitarian nature. That the Lord works behind the scenes and puts himself on display through a servant. John 1, 14, right? John 1, 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And He took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as from the only begotten, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we begin to see even this story, the Lord working behind the scenes, putting Himself on display through a suffering servant. There's a little Trinitarian connection. And then you just get a flat-out gospel connection in Joseph as a person. Now think this through with me for a second. Joseph is the redeemer of his people through suffering. And we talked about this last week when we were talking about the providence of God in our discussion. And so he is put into suffering. He's thrown in a well. 
He's sold into slavery. He's lied about and he's imprisoned. And then what happens? He's exalted. He is literally brought to life and to be seen. And who is he seen by? His brothers. And he is then second in command in the nation. Now, follow me here. Joseph, suffering, sold into slavery, sold as dead, told by his brothers he is dead. When the famine hits, he is exalted. And guess who discovers he is alive? Jacob does. And what does he do after his exaltation, his resurrection? He saves his people. You smelling gospel? Do you smell it? Do you see it? It's there. That God through Joseph is putting on display this explicit pattern that we are going to see in Jesus so that we cannot miss the gospel. You, you tracking? This is how you read the story. This is what Jesus meant when he said Moses preached about me. Which causes us to see when we read about the blindness of those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel. How dark and ugly sin actually is. That sin blinds. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 to 6. The God this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they can't see this. Sin covers this up so that we can't see it. The Holy Spirit, when we repent and believe, gives us a new heart, new set of eyes, sets us free so that we can then read these passages and go, Jesus is all over the text. That was sharp, wasn't it? I'm not normally that sharp, but I'm impressed. Do you see it? These explicit pictures of Jesus. The beautiful reality that Joseph rises to second in command is another Trinitarian connection to the very nature and character of God as three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Savior being the second in that triune nature. And then there's a gospel pattern. Genesis 37 to 50 helps build a pattern of how God is working in the world. What's that pattern? Saving a people... From all nations, from sin, by sending one who saves. Joseph is sent on a mission to Egypt by the Lord to save. And in that sending, he will rescue some Egyptians, his wife, his children, and he will save God's people. He's sent, he rescues. He saves. Here's a side note for you. When we go into our workplaces with the gospel as sent people, we cannot look more like Jesus than in that moment. We cannot smell more like Jesus than in that moment. Because in that moment when we are sent with the gospel as ambassadors of Christ and we carry his name, we are entering into the story of God in history to pull off what he started in Genesis. He sent Joseph to bear this message to save and to rescue. Jesus sends us to the nations to bear this message, his name, so that they may be saved and rescued from sin, which is why Paul will come and tell the Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ and we carry his name. You smelling it? 
You tracking with it? This is why entering into gospel work is supernatural and holy. Because we are entering into the work of God in history. We see in this pattern that the Lord works in and through and by Joseph as a mediator to bring about salvation. Paul will state this explicitly in passages like Colossians 1, 15 and 16. When we see this pattern ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Here's what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The Lord working through Joseph to be a mediator to bring about rescue. Jesus, the one to whom Joseph was pointing, is the very image of the invisible God. And it is by him he saves the world. It's all over the text. It's all over the text. You hear me? It's all over the text. It's there. What else do we see? We see Joseph's dream connected to Jesus' birth announcement by the angels. Joseph has these dreams about what is coming. The Lord speaks. He gives Joseph dreams. He shares these dreams about what is to come. And these dreams remind us of what the angels revealed to the shepherds. Jacob keeping Joseph's dreams in mind. Genesis 37, 11 takes us right to Luke 2, 19, where Mary keeps the shepherds recounting of the angelic vision, worshiping the Lord because Jesus had been sent. And it's flat out explicit, right? Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. When you read Luke 2, 19, Mary hears the shepherd's account of the angelic host revealing who Jesus is. So they come and bring him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So when you read Luke 2.19, your heart and your soul need to be carried back to Genesis 37 and 11 and go, My Lord, you have bent history to make sure I can't miss it. And therein hear the love of God for his people. That he would work so in history. So that you could see in writing and hear in story. That he loved you to bend history to make sure you could receive the message. Because he intends to save his people from all nations. How glorious is the Lord. It's also important to note here that Jacob's rebuke of Joseph points us in connection to Mary's rebuke of Jesus later on. Mary's, Mary's just Mary. She's, she's a sinner saved by grace, right? I know our Catholic brothers and sisters do more to her and do more about her than the scriptures allow us to do. And I don't want to speak to that right now. But we get this picture of Mary early on that she's just getting it, totally following along. But we recognize she's a sinner like me and just saved by grace, Right? Because later on, we'll read in Mark 3, that Mary and his brothers think he's crazy. And they come to correct him in public about the statements that he's making. Just like Jacob did to Joseph. 
Do you really think me and your mom and your brother are going to bow down to you? Get yourself together, Joseph. Jesus, we need you to come outside, lead those people in there, and we need to have a discussion with you. This God stuff is going a little too far. And Jesus' response, who are my mother and my brothers? You are. Jacob's rebuke of Joseph points us to Mary's rebuke of Jesus. Side note, your greatest defense on the reliability of your Bible is not in the historically accurate transmission of the biblical text. That's kind of important. But there are other historical documents that have been transmitted accurately. What makes the Bible unique? One story written over millennia by multiple authors from the one author God that make all of these connections. Listen to me. That is none other than divine. Your Bible has been given by the Holy Spirit to multiple authors over millennia and it tells one story. The supernatural inspiration of the Bible, which is Christian doctrine, sets us apart from anything. This isn't just a historical document. It's God's word to man. Which when we get into the spring and we finish Genesis, we're going to do series on God's word. And why it's central in Christian theology. Because it's not just a historical narrative. It's God's divine speaking to man to show us he is the one who is going to bring about the solution in Genesis 3.15. Of bringing the son of man to make sure our sins are atoned for and all things get set right. Just like he promised. That's the story of your Bible. It's the story of the gospel. Final observation, then we're going to do some, uh, some application. Genesis 37, 1 to 11 is not primarily about Jacob the sinner, but it's about Joseph the Redeemer who points us to Jesus, who is Jacob's God. The passage starts out by saying these are the family records of Jacob, but then it goes on to tell us about Joseph, not so much about Jacob. Why is that? Because Jacob begins to serve for us as a counter example of righteousness. One of the ways you'll discover as you read your Old Testament and you start to make sense of it, that all scripture will predict, prepare for, reflect, and result from Christ's person and work. And one of the ways it does that is through dead ends. Like things start out promising and then all of a sudden it crashes and you're left going, that was no good. Who's going to save us? Ding, 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 ding. Jesus, right? Jacob is a dead end. Jacob starts out promising. He wrestles with the Lord. The Lord miraculously saves him, gives him a new name. Yet, well, he's just going to be Jacob. He's going to lie to Esau. He's going to continue to play up this favoritism between the brothers that creates conflict. He continues to play up the favoritism between his multiple wives. And Jacob begins to show us the truth of Romans 6.23. The consequences of sin is death. Jacob serves as a negative example. He serves as one who is a dead end. He serves as one who points us to the reality that just like in the garden, the day you eat of it, you will die. The day you disobey the Lord, it will kill 
Jacob serves as an example to remind us sin never works out for our good. Rebellion against God never works out for our good. Rebellion against God never promises anything good. It only kills. We learn from Jacob's life, not only is sin devastating and bad, but we learn that God is able to overcome sin and still work through sinful people for good things. And God is gracious to Jacob and rescues him and saves him in spite of him. And FYI, it is an arrogant thing to say that God can't save me or save them. He is the one who has bent history to bring Jesus to save a people for himself. He can save Jacob. He did save Jacob. He can save you and he can save the worst imaginable. There's nothing outside the reach of the gospel. Moses intends to show us who Israel's God is. Moses needs Israel to know as they are exiting Egypt and coming into the promised land that their God is not Baal, their God is not Asherah, their God is not Molech, their God is not any of the pantheon of Egypt, but their God is the only God, the true God, Yahweh. Moses intends to show that he's distinct from the false gods of Egypt and Canaan by being providentially in charge. So part of the purpose of the story of Joseph, this narrative, is to put on display that the Lord has never lost control. Even though man sinned and brought chaos in the garden, God has never fumbled. I mentioned last week the flood story of Gilgamesh. And this contrast between these gods that are not gods and they start things they can't control. And Moses is writing for us the truth that Yahweh is not like them. He is distinct. You can't put them in the same category because these are not real. But the Lord, He is God and He is Savior. And what He starts, He brings to completion. And he wants them to know that it is the Lord who is God. He is the one in charge of his brother's sinful actions. And at no point is God guilty of any sin whatsoever. Man's sin is on man, but God uses it for good. And Moses wants his people to know that's who your God is. There's rich and deep theology happening in these passages where we learn the nature and character of God and how he works that out in history. We learn from Genesis 37, 1 to 11, and then for the rest of the book of Genesis, that God is absolutely 100% providential. He sees, controls, and works to the end that we would have Jesus Christ save us and work for our good. That's what we begin to glean from the story of Joseph. So, how do we apply this today? What are we supposed to do with this? Number one... If you're in Christ today, if you believe the good news, it is because God in his infinite and providential wisdom has arced history to make sure you got the message. And if you're in Christ, it's not your own doing. It is God's good grace to you. Therefore, rest in him and trust him. The Lord continues to bring me back over Sabbath until I catch the lesson. And hopefully you've been reading some of the things I've been posting recently. Sabbath is richer than one day off a week. That's not the intent of Sabbath. Sabbath is built in the nature and character of God. By the way, God doesn't get tired. You understand that? God doesn't sleep. 
He transcends that stuff. God took a day off as a pattern for us to see the gospel. Hebrews chapter 4. And if you had not made that connection, go read Hebrews chapter 4. It will change your life. The Sabbath isn't taking a day off, it's entering into Christ. And once you've entered into Christ, Jesus' words start making sense. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Meaning, when we are in Christ, we rest. We're not lazy, we work, but while we work, we rest, knowing the results are not on me. He pulls the cart. And I walk beside him and marvel at his power and his might. And I worship him for it. That's what Jesus meant. Take my yoke on you. Get after it. But I'll pull the cart. And you just worship me and enjoy me. And I'll talk to you and you talk to me. So if you're in Christ, this story of Joseph ought to cause you to sit back and go, This is good. This is good. If I find myself in a pit thrown there by my brothers, the Lord will work it out. If I'm sold into slavery, the Lord will work it out. If I'm lied about in prison, the Lord will work it out. If I'm sold into a home where I'm lied about, the Lord will work it out. If the guys I interpreted dreams for forget me, the Lord will work it out. He will work it out. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. So if you're in Christ today, learn to rest in Christ. That's Sabbath. Sabbath isn't one day a week. It's our day. It's this afternoon. It's tomorrow. So that while I'm grinding out, I'm trusting Jesus to pull the cart. That's Sabbath. So if you're in Christ... You need to let the story, the narrative of God's work in the life of Joseph and his work in the life of Israel cause you to go, I'm in Christ now. This is good. If you want to grow in that, i got some resources here for you. You can't have mine, but you can go order these for yourself. i got a few more application points. But if you grow in this ability, I'm going to give you some, some stuff here. I'd start right here. This is the best little primer. It's called Biblical Theology from Nine Marks, Nick Rourke and Robert Klein. It's a nice little primer on how to read the Bible like we're talking about this morning. If you want to go a step up, Graham Goldsworthy, who's one of my favorite authors of all time. He's a good dude. Uh, The Gospel and Kingdom by Graham Goldsworthy does a good job of helping you to read your Bible appropriately. If you want to get like crazy scholarship, off the chain kind of stuff, don't start here. Start these guys, then go to Graham Goldsworthy. But G.K. Beale, New Testament, use of the Old Testament be some great resources because as you grow in your ability to read the Bible the way God gave it to us and intended for you to read it, you're going to find that your ability to rest in Him will exponentially grow as well. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to say this. He said, these things were written down for our instructions so that through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. God did not give us the Old Testament to stress us out. He gave it to us to rest in Christ. The work's been completed. And he bent history to do it. So that Romans 8.28 then carries this whole new level of joy. And we know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he works it all for our good. Glory. Right? So as you grow, this is why, listen, I'm going to say this, and this is important. 
can't, can't not say it. Ready? You learn to read your Bible better by reading it. Okay? And then reading it again. And reading it again. I'm just going to say this. This is going to sound, some of you are going to say, well, you just made a law. No, I'm not. If you know me, you know better. Okay? You know better. <laughs> I'm almost lawless. But you know, you know. All right? Listen, reading it once through is not enough. Right? It's just not enough. It's not enough. Just like eating a thousand calories a day is not enough. It's just not enough. And it's funny how, we'll, and I said this a few weeks ago, right, when we talk about disciplines in the faith. It's funny how we'll try to apply certain things to the Bible that we won't apply to other stuff, right? I just want Bible reading to get old. You know, I don't want it to become a rote habit. Try that with breathing and sleeping, right? It's a good rote habit to breathe, isn't it? It's pretty good. Thank God for those those little re- those reflexes that your body, I know there's a medical term for it. I don't know what it is, but it does it, right? It doesn't think it gets old, does it? Try stopping eating. I'm just getting tired of eating. I think I won't eat for the next six months. You're going to die, right? There are good habits to have. Bible reading is one of them. So you need to be getting through your Bible once a year. Pick your plan. I don't care. There are a thousand plans that will get you through it. Pick one. Because the more you read through it, the more you're going to see the ark to Jesus. And the more you're going to rest. You're going to rest. You're like, the Lord's got this. So that was, out, that was application number one. Application number two. If you are outside of Jesus today, I trust that the Lord's able to show you that. Maybe you came in here today and you knew you didn't belong to Jesus. Maybe you came in here today and you discovered you don't belong to Jesus. But wherever you find yourself today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God through Jesus. Romans 10, 9 to 11 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For as the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This morning, you've heard enough gospel reality from the supper and from the life of Joseph to be saved. And if the Holy Spirit has shown you this morning that you're not in Christ, simply confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and you will be miraculously transformed. Number three, fight sin. We didn't spend a ton of time down in some of the messes that Jacob made, but we see enough to recognize Jacob is a sinner. His favoritism, his multiple wives, big deals, right? Big stuff. Nothing in the narrative of Scripture paints sin in a good light. All the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, the darkness is never called good. Never. Because it's not. Darkness, sin, rebellion, they kill. Therefore, fight sin. There's your, there's your synagogue lesson. And I don't mean that demeaning. But there's your moral lesson. Fight sin because it's a gospel issue. Sin will kill you. Sin will destroy you. Sin will never produce good. So fight sin, including the temptation to not rest in Christ. For us Christians, Paul said it in Romans chapter 8, unless we put that stuff to death, it will kill us. So therefore, fight to put to death sin, lest it come to life and kill us. 
sin destroys. And then finally, worship. I don't know about you, but the more I read the Bible, the more I want to sit in awe. I find that my emotions are stirred goodly. Right? Like I, like I, I can't read these narratives and not see God working for my good. If you just recount for yourself how the gospel got to you, it's nothing short of miraculous. And so as we read these narratives, let them take you to Psalm 147.1 that says, Praise Yahweh. For it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and a song of praises. Fitting. Listen, anything that sits on top of you and tries to squelch down the worship of the Lord and singing didn't come from the Lord. In fact, as we meditate on the goodness of God to save a people for himself, it should and it is right that it produce in us this desire to marvel at and enjoy the Lord. Which is why in Christian worship services we sing. And so you know what we're about to do? Sing. So this morning, if you're in Christ, let him be glorified through your song. So pray with me. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name that you would bring about good things this morning in the hearts of your people through your word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Help us to hide it deep in our hearts that we would not sin against you, but help us to also hide it deep in our hearts that we would respond to your invitation to join the angels of heaven in praise. Holy Spirit, I ask now that even in this room you would work in such a manner as to cause your people to praise you. Lord, create awe in our hearts as we delight in you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would point us to Jesus. He said your chief ministry was to be our counselor who walked beside us and guided us into truth and pointed us to the reality of Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would point us to Christ. Father, I pray that you would cause a heavy, weary soul to take your yoke upon you and find you to be gentle and lowly in heart and find rest for their weary soul. I pray this morning for one that doesn't know you and rescue. Would you rescue them from darkness and from sin and cause them to see and savor Jesus Christ more? And all over this room today, make your name great. Cause your kingdom to be to come and your will to be done here in this room as it's done in heaven. 